we've been talking about God's amazing grace over the last few weeks. And uh, this morning we're going to continue. I want to talk about God's grace in uh, everyday life. How can you and I appropriate God's grace in every everyday life, in uh, different areas of everyday life? I just want to talk about that. Last Sunday we made a very important statement. We said that everything in the Christian life is by grace through faith. Everything in the Christian life is by grace and through faith. It's because of God's grace. And you and I appropriate it or receive it into our lives by faith. And uh, before I just get into talking about God's grace in different areas of life, I just just want to address, you know, what might be a little misconception with some, among some believers, especially in the area of grace, repentance, and confession of sin. Just need to clear the air on that and just talk a little bit on that. And then we'll get into talking about God's grace in everyday life. You know, for, for instance, you know, when we say that we have been freely justified by grace, God has freely forgiven us, us all our sins and justified us, made us clean and right and perfect in His sight. Sometimes we might, you know, tend to, push that and say, you know, so then why do I need to confess, to repent and confess of sin when I commit, when I do something wrong? Because after all, Jesus died for all all my sins. He died for every sin past, present, and future. And if Jesus has died for all my sins, and they've all been already paid for, then what's the need for me to confess? What's the need for me to repent? Because it's already been paid for. And so, Taking that thought in mind, what has resulted in some parts of Christendom is an, uh, what we would call a sleazy grace or a grace that just says, you know, you do what you want because just, just live as you want because anyway, all your sins are already paid for. You don't have to repent. You don't have to say, I'm sorry, uh, confess your sin when you do something wrong. So let's address that. You know, so the question, are all my sins forgiven even before I confess them? The answer is yes. All sins have been paid for already in the sense that when Christ died, He died for the sins of the whole world. It's already been paid for. And yet God requires us to repent. He requires us to confess an appropriate forgiveness. It is true every sin has been paid for. It is true. That Christ has died for the sins of the whole world. But yet, we must confess. We must say, Lord, I'm sorry. Confess and repent. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, and yet in time, He had to die. It was already done. I mean, as far as God was concerned, in the mind of God, it was already there from the foundation of the world. But in time, He had to be the Lamb of God, on the cross. So Christ has already paid for the sins of the whole world. In the court of heaven, every human person can be saved. And yet, in time, each person has to make that decision to believe in Jesus Christ. Nobody gets automatically saved, even though it's all been paid for. You all with me so far? So while Christ has already paid for all my wrongdoing, even before I've committed them, you know, maybe several months from now, I might do some things wrong. It's already been paid for on the cross. Christ doesn't have to die for those sins yet again. It's already been paid for. But yet, when I commit sin, I need to confess and repent of that. 
and I forsake what I've done. Just to illustrate this from the Bible, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but you know, when, when in the Corinthian church, there were lots of problems, and one of the factors was immorality. Paul, who was the one who received so much revelation and grace, he did not write to the Corinthian church and say, you know, I know there is sin among you, brethren, but Christ has already paid for it, so just, just keep going. You don't have to confess. You don't have to repent. You don't have to deal with it. No, he didn't say that. In 1 Corinthians 5, he writes a strong letter to the Corinthian church. In fact, he says, put out from among you that sinful person. Have no fellowship with this brother who's walking disorderly because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You need to make a disconnect. You need to bring in correction to this person. Well, if there was... If sin was already forgiven, then why bring in any kind of correction? So, there had to be repentance. There was correction brought in. And apparently that the man who committed this sin repented. So Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. And he encourages them to extend grace and welcome him back into fellowship. Lest he is taken up with too much sorrow. The whole church repented and including the individual. And also when Jesus writes or speaks to the seven churches in the book of Revelation... At least five to five of the seven churches, he says very strongly, I want you to repent. I mean, this is to the church for some of the wrongdoing. He doesn't say, you know, I've already paid for your sins. I'm Alpha and Omega, the one who died for all your sins. I was dead. I'm alive forevermore. I know you're all doing wrong things, but it's already forgiven. Just enjoy life. His strong word is repent to each of the seven, at least five of the seven churches. It's pretty strong. Meaning that as believers, we need to confess and repent when we are in wrongdoing. So the next question connected to this is, the act of confession that brings forgiveness or the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is obvious. It's the cross. It's what Jesus did on the cross that brings forgiveness. But what, then what, why is my act of con- repentance and confession so important? Because my act of confession and repentance is my, the expression of my faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's me saying, God, I know I have sinned, I've done something wrong, but I'm standing before you knowing that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses all my sin. Therefore, I'm bringing it to you. So God needs that. He's taught us to do that. Sometimes, uh, you know, some people say, you know, you know, when God looks at you through Jesus, Jesus is like this opaque thing that God doesn't see your sin. So really, your sin is not sin. There's no holy sin in the Bible, is there? Sanctified sin. There's no such thing. So does a believe, when a believer sins, does he sin? Or is it a holy, sanctified, anointed sin? Or is it that God doesn't see it because Jesus is in the way? Listen, God sees everything we do. The Bible says we stand before him naked, Hebrews 4. There's nothing hid from his sight. When a believer sins, he does sin. And so a believer must stand before God and say, God, I confess my sin. I'm sorry for it. Lastly, in the same light, you know, Sometimes people say, well, well, you know, if I need to confess all my sins, I don't remember all of them. I'm not, you know, writing them down. Some of us will be busy with that. No, it's just <laughs> I'm not writing them down. So how can I remember all my sins to confess and ask God to forgive me? It's true. None of us, you know, can keep track of every wrongdoing and thought and imagination, mind and word and deed. It's true. But we can pray for the psalmist in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 13. The psalmist said, who can understand his errors Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So the psalmist is praying and saying, God, cleanse me from secret faults. Even the things that I am not aware of. Cleanse me from it. Cleanse me from everything I've done wrong. So we as believers need to go back to God for the things that we know we have done wrong. And also for the fact that God, there may be things that I've done, which I'm not even aware of that they're wrong. So cleanse me from secret faults. 
things that I'm not even aware of, but that are wrong, they are wrong in your sight. Amen? So the key here that I want to just present to us this morning is that we must avoid the ditches on either side. That is, avoid being somebody who knows about grace but lives under self-made law. That's a ditch on one side. And then there's the other ditch, the ditch on the other side where is extreme grace, with sleazy grace, where, you know, hey, it's all done over, all taken care of, so don't worry about confession, don't worry about repentance. That's the other side of the ditch. Must learn how to walk correctly before God. So in just closing this section here, I want to remind us what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.13. He said, Brethren, you've been called to liberty, but do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. You know, we've all been called into freedom. Grace liberates us. Grace gives us so much liberty. But he says, don't use your liberty to gratify your fleshly ungodly desires. Or Paul writes in Romans 13 and verse 14, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That means you let people see Jesus in you and don't give any opportunity, any room for your flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. So we need to have a balance here of understanding grace, confession of sin, and repentance. Now let me go into the message this morning. We've got half an hour. Just bear with me here. I want to talk about grace in everyday life and begin by talking about grace for godly living. There is grace for different areas of life. We want to talk, touch a few of them this morning. I want to begin by talking about grace for godly living. Sanctification is really a work of grace. Sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves to be sanctified. Listen, really, sanctification is the working of God's grace in our lives. So none of us can take credit for, you know, how holy we may be, or how much sin we've overcome, or how clean our life is, or how pure we live. We can't take credit for it, because really, sanctification of godly living is a working, is a work of grace in our lives. In Romans chapter 5, if you have your Bibles, in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, on to verse, chapter 6, verse 2, Paul is dealing the whole issue of sin, of grace, and living the victorious Christian life. We're just going to pick a few verses from there. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned resulting in death or in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded. You know, when there was so much sin, God was very gracious. The grace of God abounded. But what did it result in? He says, just as sin dominated or reigned, resulting in death, he says, grace will reign Unto righteousness. Grace leads you into righteousness. Grace results in righteousness. Amen. He said where there was sin, there was a lot of grace. But what was the result? Not that people sinned more. But it drew them into righteousness. He continues that in chapter 6 verse 1. He says, so what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer is quite obvious. He says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So we people who experience the grace of God. How many of you have experienced the grace of God? Put your hands up, please. Okay, just look at your neighbor. Make sure he has his hands up. He's got his hands up. Just look at him and say, you're the living dead. He says, 
Verse 2 says, you know, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? You're dead to sin. You've experienced the grace of God. You're dead. Dead to sin. So you can't live any longer in it. So the point here is this, that the grace of God comes upon us, not that we can do more sin, but we can be dead indeed unto sin. In that same chapter, he goes on into verse 14. I'm skipping so much here. Just go to verse 14. Paul writes and he says, Sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. He's saying sin will not dominate you. Let's say it together. Sin will not dominate me. Come on, say it like you mean it. Sin will not dominate me. So Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you. Why? Because you're not under law, but under grace. What's he saying? Under law, you had no power to overcome sin. But under grace, you have all the power you need to overcome sin. That's why sin will not dominate you, because you're under grace. The law was powerless. It told you what was right and wrong, but didn't give you the strength to do it. Under grace, not only are you told what is right and wrong, but you are empowered by grace to live that way. Therefore, sin will not have dominion over you because you are under grace. Therefore, grace has something to do with helping you overcome sin. The grace of God empowers you to live a godly life, to overcome sin. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, the passage we read last Sunday, talking about God saving grace. It says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God's grace has appeared to all men. But what does it do? It moves us into a place where we deny of earthly lusts and live godly and soberly in this present world. Amen. That's what the grace of God does. Now, God's grace is extended to us. It works in our lives through two channels. Two, the Bible college, I usually try to speak in my broken Hindi. I won't try it. I was almost tempted. Do channel here. The grace of God is released into our lives through two channels. One is by the working of His Holy Spirit. The other is by His Word. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace. Whenever the Holy Spirit is called something in the Bible, it means that that's what He does. When He's called the Spirit of wisdom, it means He brings wisdom. When He's called the Spirit of uh, life, it means He brings life. When He's called the Spirit of knowledge, it means He brings knowledge. When He's called the Spirit of uh, strength, it means He brings strength. When the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of grace, in Zechariah 12, 10, I think it is, and also in, uh, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 10, 29, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of grace. It means it's the Holy Spirit who is going to in bring in an impartation of the grace of God into my life, into your life. Amen? The other channel that the way, the, by which the God's grace comes into our lives is through His Word. The Bible is called the Word of Grace. Acts 14.3 and Acts 20, verse 32. It's called the Word of His Grace. His Word brings His grace into your life and mine. That's why it's so important to have his, the Spirit of God and the grace of God working in our lives. Amen? So don't disconnect from Holy Spirit. You know, oh man, that church, they talk about the Holy Spirit. They pray in these unknown tongues. They do all this Holy Spirit stuff. Excuse me, you need the Spirit of God. Because this, He is the Spirit of grace. 
Some of us are afraid of the Holy Spirit. You need the Spirit of God at work in your life. And His Word, His Word of grace. Acts 20, 32, Paul said, You know, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance from those who are sanctified. See, it's His Word, the Word of His grace that builds you up. So you need that Word in your life. So God's grace comes into us by His Spirit and by His Word. That's why we must learn to walk in the Spirit. That's a whole, a whole lot of understanding on walking in the Spirit. Paul says, you know, in Galatians 5.16, he says, Walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. See, the working of the Holy Spirit helps you live a godly life. Walk in the Spirit. Romans 8.13, Paul says, you know, if you satisfy gratify the deeds of your body, you will live. But if you by the Spirit mortify, or put to death the sinful deeds of your body, you will live. By the Spirit, you are crucifying, putting to death the sinful deeds of your body. Spirit of grace helping us overcome or live godly. And so also the Word. I want to just close with this thought here, this section about grace for godliness. I want to close it with this thought. You know, on the one hand, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He said, I discipline my body. And I keep it in subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself must fall away. So he did something. He disciplined his own body. He kept his body in subjection. Right? So that was his effort to live godly. He disciplined his body. But then writing to the same Corinthians in the second epistle, Paul says this. He says in verse, chapter 1, verse 12, he says, you know, Corinthians, I'm boasting about this. The testimony of our conscience, 2 Corinthians 1.12. That we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. He said, Corinthians, I want you to know something. When you saw us, you saw us conducting the way we conducted ourselves. You know, we have a clear conscience that we did nothing wrong when we came to you. I mean, our lives were impeccable. We, you saw how we conducted ourselves in sincerity, in godly purity. We walked among you. But Corinthians, we didn't do this by fleshly wisdom. We didn't do this by our own abilities. We did it by the grace of God. Amen. So even the ability to walk in godliness is a work of God's grace. Yes, you have a part to play. You need to discipline your body and keep it in subjection, etc., etc. With the help of His Word and His Spirit, you do it. But at the end of the day, none of us can say, none of us can take the credit. We still say, we conducted ourselves by His grace. Amen? Let me just quickly go over a couple of other areas where the grace of God works in everyday life. There is grace to overcome temptation. You know, sometimes I wish I never, I was, I never, this temptation thing would just get over. I mean, like, I wish there were no temptations. I mean, life would be so much easier. But the reality is, as long as you're on the earth, you will face temptation. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter how much of the word you've read, how much you've prayed. Just as every morning when you wake up and his mercies are new every morning, you wake up and the devil's temptations are new every day. It's there. I mean, like, you just think you've come out through a fight. It's a man, that was, thank God, I've just, you know, I've come out through this. I'm standing strong. God, thank you, Lord. Wake up the next day and there's another thing that was coming up with, right? We all face that. Or is it only me? I need you all to pray for me after service. 
But here's what the word of God says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. Verse 16 says, For indeed, he, that is the Lord Jesus, does not, he does not give aid or assistance to angels. There's no angelic aid. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That the Lord Jesus does help those. He gives assistance. So he strengthens those who are the children of Abraham. And then in verse 18 it says this. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. He is able to aid, to assist, to strengthen those who are being tempted. It's all of us. In the middle of our temptations, the Bible says, He is able to aid those who are being tempted. That means you can go to the Lord and say, God, I'm in the middle of this temptation and I need some help. He's able to aid those who are being tempted. Now, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews continues in chapter 3 and then he goes on to chapter 4 and he comes to this 16th verse in Hebrews 4 that you and I are familiar with. The writer says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What was the time of need he's talking about? Well, there are several things he talks about in chapter 3 about working and rest. But he also did mention in chapter 2, verse 18, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So your moments of temptation are your times of need. What must we do? He says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Because you can find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Amen. Grace that helps us overcome temptation. There is grace that strengthens us. We talked about this earlier in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Where Paul, because of the abundance of revelations, he has to stand up against this demonic spirit. Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. What was a thorn in the flesh? He tells us what it is. A messenger of Satan. So it wasn't cancer. It wasn't a blind eye. It wasn't a short leg. It wasn't a bald head. It was a messenger of... Because you know, that's what you find in all the commentaries. Paul had a blind eye. He had a short hand. He had a broken leg. These, that was his thorn in the flesh. That's not the thorn in the flesh. His thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan. He tells us right there. Amen? Now what was this messenger of Satan doing? He said... There was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. This doesn't mean he took him out to lunch every day. It just means he kept coming back over and over again with attacks. It's all about food. You know, yesterday when I watched the video about Kenny, I started laughing. I remember Kenny's part, this great spiritual father. Okay, so Paul says, this messenger of Satan, he was buffeting me. He was coming back over and over and over again. Opposing me in the ministry, causing all kinds of difficulties in the ministry. And so Paul says, concerning this thing, I besought the Lord three times. I prayed three times. God, take this devil away. God, do something with this thing that's coming again and again and again against me. What was what God's response? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my strength is made perfect. It's, it comes to the full. It comes to maturity in your weakness. So Paul writes, he says, therefore I gladly, I'd rather boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, that's when I am really strong. There is grace that strengthens. So I don't know what, what opposition, what kinds of things you are facing that the devil keeps coming up against you over and over and over again. But you and I, like Paul, can 
appropriate God's grace, knowing that His grace is sufficient for us in the middle of that thing. When you feel like, God, it's the end of the road. I can't take this anymore. It's so tough, God. His grace is sufficient. Because when you feel absolutely weak, that's when His strength in your life comes to fullness. Amen? So there is grace that strengthens. There is grace that provides. Do you know that provision is a work of God's grace? Provision. Talking about money. Coming into your life. It's a work of God's grace. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8, you know, Paul is talking about money. He's talking about sowing. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. And he says, you know, you give as you purpose in your heart. Don't grudge about it. Just give uh, uh, because God loves a cheerful giver. Then he says in verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to achieve. And what will this grace do? So that you always have things. All sufficiency and all things will abound to every good work. Man, you'll have your basis will be covered. You'll have provision on every side. What is it? God making all grace abound to a tear. Provision is a work of God's grace. Amen? So you pray, God, I need this grace for provision. Some of us this morning need to pray, God, give me grace to overcome temptation. Some of us might need to pray, say, God, give me grace to live a godly life. Some of us may need to pray, say, God, I'm give me grace to be strong in the middle of this very difficult situation. Some of us may need to pray and say, God, I need grace that provides, that brings the provision of God so that on whatever side I turn, I'm able to abound to every good work. There is grace that helps us conquer. Grace that helps us conquer mountains. Grace that conquers. In Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, the prophet Zechariah is speaking to Zerubbabel and he's saying, Zerubbabel was a governor of the Jewish people. They had just been sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And uh, this assignment of rebuilding the temple was such a daunting task that the uh, Jewish people just withdrew. They discontinued rebuilding the temple. And so now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they come, they begin to uh, encourage the people to rebuild and and continue the work, to restart the work. And so the prophet Zechariah speaks and says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might, it's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And then he says, Who art thou, a great mountain before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. And he will bring the capstone. And he will come shouting, Grace, grace to it. Shouting, Grace, grace to your mountain. What's your mountain? There is grace that can help you overcome it. And what must you do? Proclaim grace, grace. That's what the prophet told Zechariah. You come shouting, Grace, grace. To the mountain. Shout grace. Grace to it. Because God is going to help you overcome. You who laid the foundation of this temple. You will also lay the capstone of the finishing stone. God's word to you. But Zechariah. You've got a mountain standing in front of you. Shout grace. 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 that helps you conquer your mountains. So God's grace is available to us in different areas of life. We receive it by his spirit and his word. Before I close. I want to talk about another aspect of the grace of God. Which is the grace that disciplines. The grace that disciplines. You know, God's a loving God. He's a very gracious God. But in His love and in His grace, He also disciplines us. In Revelation 3 verse 19, Jesus said, As many as I love, I give them lots of chocolates. He said, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And that word chasten is the old English word. You know, you even when you hear that word chasing, in your mind you picture somebody chasing you. So it's like 
Those I love, I chasten. So you think like God is chasing you with a spanker. That's not what it means. The word chasten simply means to bring loving correction. To lovingly correct. That's the word chasten. In Hebrews chapter 12, and it's a long passage, but I want to read that passage because it gives us a very important insight into the grace of God at work in our everyday life. I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 17. I'll just read through it and I'll bring your attention to one or two thoughts on this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 17. Let's read the whole passage. It says here, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may be dislocated, may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Now look at verse 14. Let's go through verse 14. Pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15. Careful attention. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthrights. That wasn't in our life groups. For you know that after... Gosh, sometimes I would laugh at my own jokes. Right? For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. What's the writer saying? You know, he's talking about God bringing discipline, bringing loving correction. How does God bring loving correction? How does God chasten us? You know, probably three ways, and there are many ways that God can do it. But he corrects us by his word, by his spirit, and through godly people placed around us. He brings correction into our lives. You know, maybe in the morning, uh, let's say you're waking up, uh, you wake up and you read the word of God. And maybe let's say for a long time, we had a wrong idea, a wrong notion in our minds, which therefore allowed us to continue in a certain behavior. But that morning as you're reading the word of God, something from the word just jumps at you. And the word comes like a hammer that dislocates that wrong idea, the wrong notion that you were holding on to and dislodges it. And because the truth has now come in, you can no longer continue in the wrong kind of behavior. Go with me. So what's happened? God's word bringing correction in your life. The same thing, the work of his spirit, something inside is so restless. No, 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 this is not right. It's the spirit of God telling you, you need to change. Or it could be godly people that, that speak into your life and bring correction. So God lovingly corrects us in several ways. And no correction is pleasant. But here's what I want to bring your attention to. While he's talking about God working out his correction in our lives, he says in verse 15, Be careful that you don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Meaning, or the Message Bible says, don't get left out of the grace of God. Meaning, you know, there is this abundance of grace available. There's unlimited grace available. Yet, because of something that we do or do not do, we 
fall short. We come into a place where we do not experience the working of His grace in our lives. So Paul, the writer of Hebrews, says, be careful. When correction comes into your life, be careful how you respond. Because that correction is meant to bring you to healing. But if you don't respond correctly, it might dislocate you. So he says, you know, pull up those hands that hang down, those feeble knees. And move on towards healing rather than being dislocated. Be careful how you respond, lest you fall short of the grace of God. Lest you get left out of the grace of God. Are you listening this morning? There is abundance of grace available for every one of us. But how I respond will determine whether that grace really invades my life and works in my life the things that God pleases. Or, while that grace is available, I'm just falling short of the grace. I don't experience it in my life. And that's true for us as leaders as well. You know, as Christian leaders, we must ex- extend grace, but there's also time when we need to bring discipline in the lives of those we need. I want to encourage all of us to enjoy and experience God's grace every day. There's grace available for every area of life. Let's not fall short of it. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.